You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to season three, and I, I can't believe I'm saying that, of the Together in Literacy podcast. I'm here with the amazing Casey Harrison. Hi, Casey. Hello. And we are thrilled to be back. Yes, season three is kicking off today, and we've got a great topic for you. I always feel like we have a little too much to say in one episode, but we are really, really excited to be back with you. So if you are listening at this time in very late summer, 2023, Casey and I had some time off from recording episodes over the summer so that we could spend a bit more time with our families, have some much needed vacation time, maybe do a little too much work here and there, but (laughs) still plenty of time for relaxation. And we are feeling so ready to dig back into this podcast with all of you. So we've got lots of exciting things planned for season three. Definitely make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you can get that notification when a new episode hits. We typically uh, release a new one every other Monday. And we also have blog posts that accompany each episode with helpful links and and other things to look forward to. And we always like to kick off our season episodes with feedback. And we are so grateful for your feedback. It really just puts the wind in our sails as we continue to help all of you. So this is from Kay's song. And Kay said, hello, I am a resource inclusion teacher with certification to serve students with the condition of dyslexia. I thank you for saying advocacy takes time to develop in students. I share that all students have a voice and can express to their teachers what works for them. Okay, this is such a timely piece of feedback for me personally, because I was just having this conversation, not only today, but yesterday with two different families about the importance of helping children develop their self-advocacy skills. I personally think we could be looking at a future episode on this topic again, because it's just so, so critical for our students with dyslexia. So yes, we are firm believers in helping children develop those self-advocacy skills. And we really appreciate that feedback coming in. Casey, what do you think? We, yeah, we are. I, I love that feedback. And really, I feel, you know, that was part of why Emily and I wanted to have this podcast because we felt that 
Yes, we want to address the academic components of dyslexia, but we also know through our work over the last 20 plus years, each of us, that it really encompasses so much more. And that self-advocacy piece is such an important part of our students' journey. So Kay, um, I am sure that all of your students are very grateful for you in supporting them on their journey and having that voice. So thank you. Absolutely. And if you enjoy the podcast, please, we would love your rating and feedback on it and definitely let us know. And we would love to read your feedback on a future episode. Absolutely. All right, Casey. You. Yeah, I was gonna say, we also have a few episodes that we've done on self-advocacy skills. So be sure to check those out from season two and season one as well. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. You know, now that we're in season three, Casey and I might have to check our our cliff notes as to wait when did we talk about that which which number was it they're starting to blend on a tiny bit but just bear <laughs> with us we'll all come back so many great topics that we've covered and so yeah looking back at those previous seasons I am just so excited about all the different topics that we've already covered and those that we are going to continue to dive into I was just saying I was telling Casey before we started recording that I had a chance to listen to the last episode of season two and the first episode of season two uh, this morning. I was, you know, in the car alone. Wow. That was like kind of a treat. <laughs> and I said, wow, these are such great episodes. So definitely dive back in if you haven't had a chance to listen to those. All right, Casey, take I love it. I love it. Yeah. Today's episode is a continued invitation to look deeply at what structured literacy really is. Um, when we left off last season, as Emily was saying, we discussed what we call the knowledge and practice standards for teachers of reading, which is from the International Dyslexia Association. You may hear it referred to as the KPS. And really what it's looking at is that importance of having those highly trained educators. Um, and so the KPS is available in English and in Spanish, and we'll include the link to that in the show notes. And it really is designed to set the stage for all teachers of reading to bring greater specificity to how the knowledge of standards could be assessed in the context of coursework and how to practice applications of structured literacy, um, how that could be demonstrated in our coursework and in our classrooms today. So as we navigate an education system with many educators who may not have received this training in their pre-service years from college and universities, or even continued professional development that's ongoing, right? we see a continued urgency to help people on their journey. And so to open the doors of discussion and learning when it comes to not only that science of reading, but as Emily and I like to say, the science of learning, we want to open up some conversation about this today. Right. And that document, I know you may feel like you've heard Casey and I mentioned before, but if you haven't, uh, we once again, we will have the link to it in the show notes and in the accompanying blog post. But it's definitely a document that you'll want to familiarize yourself, especially as you begin to make decisions about how structured literacy can fit 
into your school districts, the type of professional development you choose, the types of curriculum and, and programs that you choose to perhaps adopt. From a, a parent or caregiver standpoint, you might be wondering, well, how is this going to affect me? Do I need to check this out? Certainly, if you are interested in the curriculum that is taking place in your school district for your own child, yes, you may want to look into the KPS to see how things are aligning with it. Are they taking a structured literacy approach that will adhere more closely to the science of reading and science of learning? So we are going to kick off just a little bit of a discussion, we think, that was really kind of guided the KPS, and that is the five pillars of reading. Mm -hmm. And you might have heard about the five pillars of reading before, but we feel it's necessary to kick off with this topic because it's really a foundational discussion, first of all, before we go, as we are beginning a brand new podcast season with all of you, we want to really root all of our discussions based off of that. To take it a little bit further, we want to discuss how the five pillars uh, really ties in with what we do in a structured literacy approach and how the two are sort of sort of married to one another. Further, as we get into this discussion, we are going to, because we know it's timely, have um, some quick notes and points about some of the opposition that you may notice when having a discussion about the science of reading or structure literacy with people who may still be in, for lack of a better words, the balanced literacy camp. And so we will be going over some of the issues that you might still be hearing, some misguided statements, some misunderstandings, things like that, and how you can equip yourself when those conversations come up. So we'll have some tips at the end in regards to that. Boy, yeah. Casey, that's a lot. You ready? That's a lot. It is a lot. All right. And I think when we're talking about you know, the five pillars of reading, I feel like those are fairly agreed upon in yeah. the education world. So our five pillars of reading, we have phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And you know, the National Reading Panel came out in 2000, so 23 years ago from when this podcast is being recorded, um, really determining that these five pillars of reading instruction are necessary for our students' success. So that's a long time that they have been out there. You know, since then, we've continued to have more research that's backing up those findings. But some of the things that I notice in conversations is that perhaps even though that national reading panel has been available for decades now, that perhaps we haven't dug into it in a way that we need to, to really understand what it is that it's saying, because it truly is structured literacy. It is looking at these components and what is necessary to put into our classrooms to help all of our children find reading success. Absolutely. So these, gosh, from the National Reading Panel 2000. So let's see, uh, I was a brand new teacher <laughs> when this came out. 
And yes, I still have my original National Readable mm-hmm. Reading Panel printed document book. I have an actual book <laughs> uh, from that. So it's still relevant today. And what, what we have noticed is, yes, this is deeply connected to structured literacy. But what we've noticed with iterations, I think, of the five pillars in programs that are not based on structured literacy is an overemphasis on some of the pillars right. versus looking at all of them and the role that they play in helping um, early literacy in reading instruction. Yeah, so absolutely. Casey, would you agree? Yeah, I do agree with that. And I find myself even going back, you know, when I, I was working at a district um, level as a literacy facilitator, when that came out and we read through the entire manual and it's quite thick, but it has so much research and research that has continued to prove itself to be true. So even though it's decades old, it is still something that is reliable. And I I really feel it would be beneficial for everyone to read, but looking at that and, and anchoring our work in what the research is saying, and then helping us to really analyze is our instruction, are there areas that we need to, to modify, right? To, to alter a little bit, looking at our programs and really looking at through the lens of research and not through emotion. Right. So we dive into how these five pillars really are married to structured literacy and how they encompass that. When we look at the principles of structured, effective structured literacy instruction, that is where we feel like for us personally as Orton-Gillingham educators, yes, mm-hmm. these are these are our principles that we follow in our lesson plans all the time. But we also feel like they address the science of learning. This is how people learn best using the five pillars, but also just principles that we want to make sure are deeply embedded in whatever we do with with not only our liter- literacy instruction, with really teaching any content area. Right. And so we know, of course, structured literacy, right, was coined by the IDA for effective reading instruction. We've noticed in the past, it was not only effective for people with dyslexia, but now beneficial for the majority, right? So uh, why not dive into it if it is knowing that the majority will be positively affected by this approach. All right. So Casey, we want to talk about some of the points of structured literacy. Sure. Yeah. So if we're looking at, you know, the five pillars, so the five pillars are talking about that phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And then if you're asking, you know, are those aligned with structured literacy or how do they differ? I kind of look at structured literacy as this is what you're going to do to ensure that you're addressing those five pillars. So if we're looking at structured literacy, as Emily said, it's the term that was coined by the International Dyslexia Association to describe what is effective reading instruction that is vital for our students with dyslexia, but also has proven to be beneficial for all students. And so we have these evidence-based elements that really work together. And so here we're looking at phonology, right? The study of sound structure of our spoken language. And Emily and I talk often about how reading is rooted in language. Language. Language, yeah. (laughs) 
phenology element. And within that, we have phonemic awareness. And so with that, in that, that phonemic awareness, we know is central to phonology and to our work in literacy instruction. We also have sound symbol correspondences. We're talking here about that mapping of those speech sounds to print. Okay. And so within that, that's where we're talking about that phonics, linking sounds to their orthographic representations. So that's your phonics instruction, right? Yes. And that also includes spelling. So it encompasses so much more than just those one word that, you know, those singular words. And then we have syllables, right? And syllables, I know I hear lots of people discussing, should we teach syllables? Should we not teach syllables? I think if we're understanding, again, coming through the lens of language and what our purpose is for reading instruction, syllables, you know, that is that understanding and applying of the six syllable types and syllable division rules or concepts to assist in decoding, but also in encoding. We, we do work on those. Mm -hmm. Also morphology, that is part of the structured literacy elements, morphology. So understanding and working with the smallest unit of meaning in our language. We, Emily and I have talked about this previously, that morphology begins early. It begins at the oral language level. When you're working with students and, and we're using cat versus cats, or if you have a child that's saying, oh, I jumped it. Well, we know they're starting to work on their understanding of morphology within our language. And that bridges into our written word. So that is certainly a part of our work. And then I think these last two, Emily, are really rooted in language. And I feel like this these sometimes people may have a, a very narrow lens too. However, they are so, there's so much in these. And I'm talking about syntax and semantics. And so syntax is that the set of principles that dictate the sequence and the function of words in a sentence. So think right. about that. I mean, we could do a whole episode on just syntax and talk about that yeah. language structure, but that is something that is included in there. And then semantics, the meaning of our language, that's comprehension, y'all. So it is mm -hmm. all of those pillars included in our structured literacy elements. One of the things that I feel like is so important within the structured literacy or in Gillingham approach is that we also have these teaching principles, these guiding teaching principles, and those are key. So we're looking at systematic and cumulative, right? Asking ourselves, is this explicit instruction? And then being diagnostic in our teaching. And so really to ensure that all of our children have access to effective reading instruction, it comes back to, we want to ensure that our teachers have both that deep content knowledge and specific teaching ex expertise in these elements and in the guiding principles. Right. And I think that Casey and I are in a position where we were uh, classroom teachers that may not have had this training as pre-service teachers right away in structured literacy, the science of reading, we did not. And so we know that we are not unique in that way because many people did not. So we're in this space and time where we have many educators that don't fall under that, that same or fall under that same pathway as well. 
mm-hmm. the, their pre-service training did not include this knowledge base. And so we, and many people, I think, in the um, online world feel this sense of strong urgency to be able to um, help other educators to get that word out, to get them and urge them to have schools support their training, provide training, create that pathway to get them to understand what the science of reading really is involved with and to see how structured literacy really is going to be beneficial for their students. So there's just this ongoing continued urgency that I think is going to be there for a while until we see a shift at the college and university level. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing some shift, but I don't know about you, Casey. There, I haven't seen really a wave yet. Not a wave yet. I do think there are shifts that are being made and perhaps like, mm-hmm. you know, some small current changes. I always think of this as a journey. So I am certainly not where I was when I started teaching 27 years ago in my knowledge and I continue to grow. And I feel that if we can just get everyone into the, I don't know, the science of reading river or something, right? We all might be in different- Into the flow. <laughs> yeah, into the flow. We all may be in different parts within that journey and that's okay. But also knowing that it is something that, is continuing to evolve and continuing to grow. And so, yes, we have decades upon decades of research that is saying the same thing. So we have this path, we have this journey, but we're continuing to refine and we're continuing to grow. And I think that it's just really important that, you know, we continue to deepen our understanding of what the research is telling us and our knowledge base about how we're teaching something and why we're teaching something and what we need to do to make adjustments to help our students and giving ourselves grace along the, along that path. Absolutely. Because some people may be brand new to this. We acknowledge that for sure, because we've been in that position as well in making shifts and making changes in, in our instruction. And we know that the work that we're doing is quite frankly life-saving for the ultimate success of our students. I was just going to piggyback on that, right? It is absolutely life-changing for our students. And Mm -hmm. I think we have to understand too, that when we're looking at all of those elements of structured literacy that we mentioned in the five pillars, that is a lot. And so it's Mm -hmm. not a quick fix. This is not like, oh, just put phonics in and we're good to go. That's right. This is, this is truly a it's a shift in how you may have you may be teaching you might completely shift that and just knowing that it's not going to be a quick fix that it's going to take a great deal of investment um in for our schools to to provide proper professional development and support ongoing support for their teachers to to make these these changes absolutely yes definitely an ongoing there's going to be, I think, multiple chapters yeah. in the school district as things unfold. We acknowledge at this point in 2023 that there is a great deal of discussion, that there are news articles, there are announcements about where certain educators are when they are discussing their stance on 
whether being with balanced literacy or making even maybe a shift or a rebranding into science of reading. Be that as it may, however that may look. We know that there is news, there are articles out there. Casey and I acknowledge that you are probably reading them on social media, you're probably seeing them in blog posts. And so we just wanted to address a few things that we think commonly come out from people who are pro-balanced literacy that may still feel misguided. Mm-hmm. And this is just sort of to, it's a, it's a brief list, but it's also to help you when you hear statements like this, yeah. how to perhaps respond or how to dig a little deeper and open up that discussion. So one of the common things we hear, and <laughs> I I feel like I had to say the same conversation, Casey, back in the first episode of season two, but here we are one whole year later and it's still happening, but it's been going on for a while, not just a year. And that is when people are embracing and following the science of reading, that it doesn't mean that the only thing that matters is phonics or that we are what deemed as phonics first. You may hear that statement in opposition of the science reading, of science of reading that it's very phonics centric, phonics first. We rooted this episode in the five pillars for a reason. And that is phonics was just one of the pillars. And phonics is not all that matters to us. In by saying that advocates of the science of reading are phonics first means that perhaps we simply don't care or have show any emphasis on the other four. And that is false. We just went through what structured literacy is, talking about phonology, sound symbol association, syllables, instruction, morphology, syntax, semantics, and the implementation of using systematic explicit instruction, diagnostic and prescriptive teaching, all of that. By saying it's just phonics first is saying that we are ignoring the other five pillars and that simply really is just untrue. Yeah, I agree, Emily. And and I hear that one often. And that is a very narrow lens of structured literacy. And to me, that just shows that that, that person speaking to that does not truly understand the depth in which structured literacy reaches on the literacy level. Yes, I think that's a good point you just made, the depth, because it truly is an in-depth approach to language development, not just uh, simply one little pillar of phonics. Sure, phonics instruction is going to be essential. It's needed more so maybe for some children more than others, but it is it is certainly part of our uh, literacy instruction. It is not the only. You're right. And really phonics acts as a bridge between our sound system, our oral language, our spoken language and our written system. And our written system. Yeah, exactly. We have to teach that and we need to do that in an explicit way to help students. And I think one of the main things that I see as kind of this differing mindset is that we understand that our language 
we are rooted in language. That is our sound system. We have to connect to that orthographic representations, those spelling representations. And we do that through mm-hmm. We do that. And then we connect to morphology. We understand, and I've used this word before, our language is morphophonemic. We have a sound system and we have a meaning system that exists within our language. We teach those. Then we connect to meaning. And this happens in milliseconds as we become proficient readers. But we have to start with those foundational components. When we are teaching students to start with meaning first, we're ignoring those bottom components that have to exist that are linking our speech sound to our our written language. So when we're looking at structured literacy, that's what this is about. We are moving from speech to print in meaningful ways, and we are connecting to morphology, and we're connecting to meaning. Right. And I think that the key here with our phonics instruction is that it must be systematic and cumulative and follow a sequential progression of skills, not be just a little sprinkling into whatever book may be, you know, the focus book of the week in your literacy program. Absolutely. And and we've spoken about this before. And when we understand the reading brain and there's an episode all about the reading brain and we taught, we really break it down into why we have to be systematic and explicit so that we're providing ample opportunities to create that neural pathway to connect those speech sounds to the letter representations in very meaningful and descriptive ways. So that is something that is different than just sort of sprinkling phonics in. That's not what we're that's not what we do. Yeah. So the next point is when people think about the science of, of reading advocates, that we are taking an extremist view. And I would say to that, that by being called an extremist educator really is, first of all, a rather negative connotation to give any educator. We know that advocates of the science of reading, people who have studied and produced this research to educators feel that sense of urgency because it has been withheld for far too long. I think there is that component of it. But in terms of being extremist, I would not refer to it as that at all. I would say that we now have this knowledge in an age where it can be disseminated so much more readily. And that is exciting. That's an exciting time to be able to do that, to share research studies, to publish new uh, peer-reviewed, art- peer-reviewed articles, to form groups to publish new literature. It's a wave for sure. But I know we we were saying before, kind of get into the flow if you feel like it's more of, if you feel like it's too big of a wave, like it doesn't have to feel like a wave pool. It could be, you know, more of a flow of a river if you're feeling overwhelmed, right? So, all right. Yeah, and I think to kind of piggyback on, you know, when I hear certain terms like extremist or phonics center or, you know, phonics only those name kind of name calling, but really just those label things. I think first and foremost is a little bit of a defense mechanism in some ways and may just kind of show where people are in their journey to leaning into the research. And 
that kind of leads me to our next point, which is every teacher pours their heart and soul into their students in front of them. And so I think what happens sometimes is we hear decisions or comments being made from a place of emotion. And we really want to acknowledge that emotion, but also come back to the research. This isn't about wanting kids to love things or, or connecting to, well, in my class, this happens here without coming back to some research. We really want to make sure that our decisions and teaching are not being made based on emotions, but really are coming back to what we know, right? What science is telling us. Right. Right. We need to be looking at the research and not just sharing, I think, widely our views based on emotions and feelings mm-hmm. of how we want reading to be this lovely experience for everyone, you know, wrapped in love. <laughs> sure, we want people to enjoy reading, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit further in a minute. Yeah. The next opposition that we continue to see is two part. There is an opposition to the use of decodables continuing, we feel like, based on people in support of balanced literacy to help children access the code. But not only in opposition to the use of them, that means their maybe their length, their purpose. Maybe they think they're just for a very, very, very short period of time, but that's going to vary child to child because they're learning to access the code and the code is the code. It's just, you learn it. And then I think there's also a minimization to actually teaching the code, to helping children really access it to the point where they are ready to begin to read and our decodables are our training wheels. We don't keep them on forever, but we do need to provide them for some children a bit longer, depending on what our assessment is telling us, um, and so that we can eventually take them off and help them progress further into uh, traditional children's books, children's literature. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, pers- I personally when I read about this opposition, see that it's coming from an adult standpoint rather than really being in the shoes of a child who is experiencing success reading decodable text, feeling that success and wanting to read more because they can access the code. Absolutely. And I think that kind of piggybacks to what I was saying about how we break the code. If we're looking at that four-part processing model and the, you know, that speech to connect it to those letters and then connecting to the meaning, when our students have opportunities to practice with that mm-hmm. symbol association, they're building that neural network in their brain. And that is what's going to get them to unlock the code. So they're actually reading what is on the page versus relying heavy on language and language patterns to quote unquote read. And so it comes when I hear this argument of not wanting to use decodables, it brings me back to to where that person may be in their journey of 
of understanding or lack of understanding of how we actually learn how to read. The wanting to impart a love of reading and writing is certainly you know a nice feeling and it's wonderful and we want children to grab onto books and enjoy the act of reading loving being in love with reading and writing may not be realistic for all learners it just might not be that is that is the reality how we view that as adults may be different in the eyes of a challenged reader. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be very, very careful with that whole view of what we're doing. The ultimate goal is to get them to love reading and writing. The ultimate goal is to get them to become uh, (laughs) proficient readers and writers. Yep. Uh, The loving part, is going to be personal and different for each person. And it may not be there at all. Right. And that's it. (laughs) And for me, when I hear this argument again, it guess what? You don't have to love reading and writing. And I say that as a person who has dedicated their career to teaching reading and writing. Right. But, and I tell my students this, especially like when I'm working with, with middle school students and high school students, guess what? They don't love reading and writing. It has been hard. It has been a hard path for them. And I am, that's not my goal. I sat with a group of sixth graders yesterday who, you know, reading is, they hate it. And and one little kid next to me said, Oh, I don't want to do this. I hate reading. And I said, you know what? That's okay. It is okay to not love reading. It's okay to not love writing. However, you have to be able to read what is put in front of you. And that's our job here. So you don't have to love it. And when I gave him that permission to not quote unquote, love it, I saw this like release of tension from him. And guess what? He participated. He actually engaged in all of the activities for reading and writing that I asked him to do, where previously it had been very much a barrier. And I'd seen that in his classroom. So we don't have to love (laughs) reading and writing, but we, we want students to be proficient and we want them to be able to read what is put in front of them. Yes, reading opens up beautiful doors for people, but I meet adults all the time who don't read books for enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And our job is, once again, to educate the child. The whole loving part of it is, you know, maybe like just a little additional thing, but we need to acknowledge that not everyone is going to being in love with a book as perhaps an adult would someday. And I know that there gets to be this emotional mm-hmm. feeling like that we need to make sure that we're imparting that love onto the child and, you know, and, and, and really modeling that in the classroom. But I think the more Casey and I work with these kids, we need to reassure them that, yeah, this stuff is hard. Mm-hmm. And we acknowledge that it is, we're going to help you get there and it's going to take time. So we just want to be really, really careful, I think, and being respectful of where each child we work with is. There are plenty of sustained silent reading days 
where those challenge readers sat there and didn't read a dang thing. Yep. <laughs> and sat there just miserable. Mm-hmm. Or pretended so, to read or, you or know, pretended. And think about that instructional time that's wasted. Right. And so those students continue to fall further and further behind. And we talked about this in the Matthew effect episode where mm-hmm. the students that are readers, yeah, sustained silent reading, they're reading, they're moving forward. They're having all of this acquisition of new language and vocabulary. Your students that are struggling, that is wasted time. It is. And they don't it have, is. they don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. And that might feel like, wow, that's a really powerful statement, Casey and Emily and just made <laughs> about reading, but it's, it really is true. Okay. And the last one, the last one is more of a, a question to pose to you all. And that is, if you see someone that, that really views that balanced literacy and structured literacy can be uh, married to one another, and th- they can take more of a, what would be called a centrist view. Here's what we pose. What are the potential dangers or misguided steps that could come out of taking a more centrist approach rather than looking more carefully at the research? Mm -hmm. Consider what the potential outcomes would be. Are we really looking at the people in front of us in mind when we take a more centrist view? There are people who are in love with the whole balance literacy aspect because of this view of the love of reading and writing. And that is a, a very emotional side of it. And then we have our structured literacy view with our research-backed practices. And we know what works for children. Children feel success. I, I think that so, centrism is... A little bit of gaslighting, in my opinion, and I'd like to hear what the listeners have to say. Um, right, but really, what is, is everyone's perception of what "quote unquote" centrism would be is going to vary. If I'm going yeah. back to structured literacy elements, well, that's could be perceived as very central in terms of that it's addressing all of the components that are needed. So I think. When I hear, again, sort of those those terms, or um, we have to be. For me, I feel that there are there are some some pitfalls that could occur with that that term being used. And when I think of that term, to be honest, I bring myself back to the five pillars in the KPS. Mm-hmm. I just steer myself back in that direction. Say all right, well, what are these documents? What is the research telling us? So sometimes we need to like steer ourselves back on the road, but right. Absolutely. I I love that. And I think that leads us into that next part of our conversation. Mm -hmm. If we are currently on this journey ourselves, no matter where we may be in this learning of shifting to the science of reading or you know, our work with working with dyslexic learners, whether we are parents, teachers, schools, or even within our colleagues, how can we work together or to help others on this journey? And so we have a couple of tips that we feel, these are things that we use when we encounter conversations with people that are either new to this journey or perhaps are resistant to this journey. 
Absolutely. And so we want to make sure that uh, if you are a teacher, perhaps in a school district that maybe still uh, not shifting over to the science of reading, really, there are some things that we could say that you may want to think about those statements and try to respond with well-researched articles from a research standpoint, not an emotional one, following up with showing the KPS, going to the IDA website and saying, okay, well, you know, this is what the knowledge and practice standards are telling us for structured literacy. How are we aligning to that? And definitely see how your the programs that you're about to choose are explicitly teaching those foundational skills of reading. Yeah. I think those are great tips, Emily. And I think you're exactly right on, right? We want to listen to that statement that that person's making and decide how, what's the best response in terms of trying to not be emotional in that response, right? Or into, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove you right. But offering research, right? And coming back to what we know about how we learn to read and the importance of those foundational skills. So I love that you brought back in the KPS, right? Those are great resources. And, you know, sometimes just having them available for people and they will come to that when they are ready, but continuing to share those perhaps with like your administration or things like that. Um, In the past, that's kind of how I've done. I've been like, hey, I ran across this great article. I just wanted to share it with you. We'll also link a helpful article about how the five pillars and structured literacy all kind of like fit together pieces Mm -hmm. of uh, of a puzzle. We'll put that in there too, that in the show notes. All right. So we are going to wrap up, but before we do, just first of all, if you'd like to be a guest on the Together in Literacy podcast and you're listening and you feel like you have a great topic, we have a, a link to a Google form that will be in the show notes. And you can sign up and we'll be looking at our schedule. Yeah, we can Mm -hmm. make that work. And we also want to let you know about our resources if you are seeking them. So Casey, take it away. Sure. Yeah. So the resources that I make are designed to help people who are working with dyslexic learners, whether that is in an intervention setting, a classroom setting, or in a dyslexia therapist role in that clinical model. So um, you can find my resources, excuse me, um, my store is called The Dyslexia Classroom, and you can find that on TPT, but also on my website, which is also thedyslexiaclassroom.com. Yes. And Casey and I both list our credentials. You can know our background and experience on our stores. Um, So when you're choosing uh, resources from educators that have the knowledge and background and training, and we think that's just so, so helpful. And my resources can be found on the literacynest.com. You'll find links to both my TPT store and my online website store and uh, other things as well. So we so appreciate your support of us as we continue to help you on this journey. We will see you next time for episode two in season three of the Together in Literacy podcast. We'd love to hear a review to see what you think of this one though. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.